Good morning. Hey, let's go ahead and grab a seat. Getting the kids up to children's ministry. That was a lot of fun. Uh, I know uh, Chris, for example, Chris, I'm going to call you out, taking a picture of me in that dress, all right? What goes around comes around, baby, just so you know. I tell you what, I, I, got, I actually get nervous acting, so Katie, mad props to you. And man, we got some great actors and actresses in our midst. I'm not one of them, but Ryan, Ryan, I think you got my future right there. That was, that was really awesome and a lot of fun to be part of. We'll say a few more things about the play at the very end of the service, but welcome to Restore Church. I see a few new faces. My name's Mike, one of the pastors here along with Cleet and Charles, and who else now? Nick, that's right, as of a few weeks ago. We are simply going to dive into God's Word, and really, there's nothing new this Sunday, right? Like every Sunday we celebrate the risen Christ, but we're going to put that on blast a little bit this morning, if that's okay. Providentially, we are going through the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 15 right now, a chapter that's all about the resurrection. So if you have a Bible, you can open up to 1 Corinthians 15. Perhaps they'll put the text on the screens behind me. Open up your phone if you'd like. But let me pray. Not because that's the kind of thing you do at church, because we really, we really want the Spirit of God to work in our hearts, right? So let's pray, and let's get after it. Father, thank you so much for the empty tomb. That Christianity is not fable, it's fact. Because the one who took our sins to the cross stepped out of the tomb without our sins, that we might be free. And I pray, Father, that he would get all the glory. Lord, I have worked hard to prepare to speak to your people through your word. Uh, Lord, if you want to call an audible to line of scrimmage and give me things that I've not thought of, I would welcome that. If you want me to delete anything that I've planned to say, please do that. May the Spirit rule this time in the word. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. So I want to talk to you just briefly about comebacks. Everybody likes a good comeback story, right? Even non-athletes, non-sports fans can appreciate a good comeback. Especially when that comeback is against all odds. And especially when that comeback is called when it seems like there is not a shred of opportunity for the team to come back. Now the greatest comeback that I ever witnessed with my own two eyes uh, in my years of both playing sports and, and coaching sports, happened up in uh, Genesee County, just outside of Flint. It was a cold Friday, uh, October night in 2017, Friday Night Lights. Uh, the high school team that I was helping coach in football, the South Christ Southfield Christian Eagles, they were playing the Genesee County Warriors. We got there, their side of the field was packed out. Our side of the field, not so much. Small high school, 90-minute drive, maybe 20 or 30 diehard fans, i.e. parents. Game did not start too pretty. We got down quickly multiple scores. But to add uh, salt to that wound, again, in all my years of sports, I had never experienced a team that demonstrated such poor sportsmanship. Severe trash talking. Far worse than that, late hit after late hit on our guys. Late hit after late hit. 
And even, I'll say this as uh, blandly as I can, even in the pileups, opposing players were throwing uppercuts into the uh, groins of our players. It was a dirty game. And it wasn't too far into the game that things got pretty heated between teams, coaches and coaches and players by players. You guys remember Sean Adams? Who can forget Sean Adams? He ran the coffee shop here for a while. He was our offensive coordinator. And he would get fired up here and there. That's Sean. Kind of speaks my language there a little bit. But I remember it was the end of the second quarter, and this one kid on the other team who was particularly dirty, Sean yelled at him, but loud enough for the coaches on the other side of the field to hear, and I think even the fans way into the parking lot, he said, you're going down. You're going to lose. We're going to beat you. We're going to win. And then there was a few more plays. We went into the uh, halftime. There was no uh, win one for the Gipper speech. There was no big coach's speech. Sean had already given it, really, across the field. Something happened in the locker room. The switch flipped. We came out, and still there were some struggles and setbacks. They still scored a little bit more. But, but the, the tide of the game just started to change. There was a huge interception by one of our cornerbacks, my son Ian. I don't know how many uh, tackles he had, but something happened with him. And, and this isn't dad bragging. This is what the, our head coach, Coach Weiss, said at the end of the season when they awarded Ian the MVP. But he said, Ian, as it were, put the team on his shoulders. And it, it, was, it was the craziest thing I've ever seen in a football game. Ian playing middle linebacker, strip sacks the uh, quarterback, recovers the fumble. We need the ball back. There's probably half of the last quarter left because our starting running back went down. He's now actually going in on offense on running back. A few plays later, he scores his second touchdown. We tie the game 30-30. Maybe three or four minutes left, five minutes left, and we kick off after that score, and their returner does something that I'm sure he regrets to this day. Instead of staying in his lane, he swings, he sees the ensuing tackler, so he swings around deep into the end zone where Ian meets him and hammers him five yards into the end zone for a two-point conversion, putting us up 32-30, which was really cool. Then we get the ball back, and I think they gave the ball to Ian seven or eight times in, just to ice the game. He could have scored another touchdown, but we were so fired up, he was looking for the middle linebacker just to run over him, which he did a few more times. <laughs> few minutes later, the horn goes off, and the, the Eagles go uh, victorious over the Warriors, 32-30. to 30. And I'm telling you, it was the most electric uh, win that I've ever been part of, I've ever observed, I've ever seen. Crazy. We swarmed the field, all like 18 of us, small high school, you know. And they literally turned off the stadium lights. All we had was some residual side pole lights. The whole em uh, fans from the other side poured out, they left, and we were there out in Genesee County celebrating this incredible victory. And it was like Sean had said. The other team went down, and we won. Against all odds, we came back and gloriously won. Now, if you and I were to be honest, sometimes we feel like we're really losing in life. Isn't that right? As Christians, we can feel that societally. We're like, man, we live in an increasingly hostile to Christians culture, do we not? Unless you want to compromise. But if you're really going to stand for what the truth is, there's going to be some vehemence against you, right? But forget societally, we just doggone personally sometimes suffer, right? We struggle with our own sin. 
There's setbacks, there's expectations. And I know of a lady where a church that I served at, my first place of ministry, she and her husband had been married for years, and then just inexplicably, he leaves her. And she talked about these crushed expectations that she had that since they both came to Christ, they would live happily ever after. And then there's just the heartbreaks of life, right? And that's why we so desperately need this text. Because this text comes along and says, hey, baby, pick up your chin. Keep your head up. In the end, we win. And the reason we win is not because we're, you know, better than a a loaf of sliced bread. It's not because we're great and all that. Okay, feel me on that, right? It's It's decidedly not because we're great. It's because Jesus Christ is great. That's why we win. So that's what I want to preach to you on this morning. We win because Jesus won. 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ put us on his shoulders. And he took our sin. He took our shame. He took our rebellion. He took it all. And he took it to the cross where he paid the penalty for our sin. He was really buried because he really died. And on the third day, he rose again proving he is who he said he is, God in human flesh, no other religion offers that up, Yahweh incarnate, and could do what he said he would, take away the sins of all who believe. So I just want to brag on Jesus for a few minutes. There are three great truths that flow out of this irrefutable reality that we win because Jesus won. Y'all with me? Great truth number one. There is, and this basically what we're going to look at is a great transformation that's going to happen in the future, all right, because of a great victory that happened in the past that demands a great response by us right now. Great transformation, great victory, great response. Number one, great transformation. Look at verse 50 of 1 Corinthians 15. I tell you, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the, imper- nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Now, I got to tell you, cults, people who have a deviant form of Christianity, a heretical view of Christianity, will seize that verse and heretically argue, you ain't rising from the dead physically. After all, does it not say, flesh and blood can't inherit the kingdom of God? But I just say, man, oh man, every text has a context, right? And the context of this whole chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, is this. Because Jesus rose physically from the dead, we too one day will rise physically from the dead. And you can take that to the bank. That's what Paul argues the whole chapter. Let me summarize in in maybe four minutes the last three sermons. We saw, first of all, in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 11, three proofs that Jesus Christ really rose from the dead. Proof number one, Scripture. These ancient inspired writings called the Old Testament said way before it happened a lot of crazy and amazing things about Jesus Christ. 300 prophecies surrounding his birth, his life, his death, his burial, and yes, even his resurrection. 
And we have copies of the Old Testament that predate the birth of Christ by two centuries. In other words, God said it was going to happen before it happened. Such as Psalm 16, verse 10, where he says, you will not leave, you will not allow me to suffer corruption. My body will not decay, referencing the fact that he will come out of the tomb. Proof number two were eyewitnesses. You go through the middle of 1 Corinthians uh, 15, verses 5 through 8, he gives you a whole host of names of people who were still living when this was written. Over 500 people, he says, Jesus appeared to at once. And we have the same, listen to me, the same evidence to support the resurrection of Christ as we do to the veracity of any other historical event that we don't even contest, namely the record of eyewitnesses. There were many eyewitnesses to his resurrection. And third of all, there is the proof of changed lives. All across this room are people who have met the resurrected Jesus Christ. I met the Lord Jesus Christ my last year in the Marine Corps, in the infantry, seemingly the least likely place you would have an encounter with the Lord. I was the farthest thing from a Christian, but I came to meet the resurrected Lord, and he has changed my life and is changing my life, and he's changing so many lives here. Then week two, we saw the, the implications, the so what of the resurrection of Christ. Three, three implications. Number one, because Jesus Christ is alive, Christianity is not fable, it's fact. He came back from the dead. Number two, because Jesus is alive, death is done. He's going to expand that today. And number three, because, because Jesus is alive, risk is right. Then last week, Paul just hammers home from verses 34 to 49. We really are going to come back from the dead, brothers and sisters. Now, do you remember the acorns and uh, oak tree analogy? That when we're resurrected, this ain't just a mere resuscitation, a revivification, a reconstruction. What good is it to come back in the same old body? No, we're planting an acorn in the ground, but we're coming up an oak tree. Same, but different. I'm not coming out of the ground as somebody besides Mike Hanafy, but it won't be the same Mike Hanafy of today. We'll all be bald. Shekinah glory. God doesn't put a marble top on cheap furniture. I don't know about that. But we're coming up different. And I think that's what he's getting at in verse 50. Like, of course not flesh and blood as we are can inherit the kingdom of God. But that's not how it's going to go down. Listen, family, even as redeemed sinners, even as people who have trusted Jesus Christ, if we went into the immediate presence of God in our unglorified bodies... The holiness of God, right? The righteousness of God. Man, that would be like throwing a plastic bottle into a bonfire. It would destroy us. Back in the Old Testament, Moses said to God, let me see your glory. You remember what God said? You can't see, no man can see me face to face and live. So we threw him up in the rocks and watched his hind parts walk by, right? Which then would cause somebody, if you're tracking with me, maybe to ask this question. Are you all with me? Covering a little bit of terrain today. 
Well, what about when Jesus Christ returns for the Christians that are still alive then? And by the way, the same Bible that said he's coming a first time, and he did, is the same Bible that says he's coming a second time, and he will. But the question is, what about Christians who are alive at his return? Their bodies haven't been put in the ground. Their souls haven't been gone gone in the Lord's presence. They're still alive. How could their unglorified bodies survive his immediate presence? Wouldn't they just be fried like you just said? Now, if someone is asking that question, Paul has a great answer to that great question. Verse 51 squarely addresses that. He says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. By the way, in the Bible, a mystery isn't something that you can just kind of figure out on your own if you get enough clues, like a mystery novel, a mystery movie, a mystery room. No, biblically, is a mystery is something you can't understand unless God chooses to reveal it. What's our job when God reveals truth, though? What's our job? What's our responsibility? Our responsibility is to receive that truth and to believe that truth. Even if it seems so out of bounds, you're to believe it. Even if it seems so fantastical, coming back from the dead, what are you talking about? He's revealed that. Fools reject that because they can't understand it. Listen, man, there's a lot of stuff you can't understand. You flick your lights on, the light comes out. You don't understand all that. Fools reject it because they can't understand it. Those who fear the Lord receive it. And if you ever want to start reading the Bible, a great segue, a great entry place would be Proverbs 1-7, which says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of what? But fools despise wisdom and instruction. So he says, I tell you a mystery. And then he goes on to say, we shall not all sleep. That is a euphemism for die. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be, what? Changed. So in other words, whether you're a, a Christian whose body's in the ground and souls with the Lord, you'll be changed. Or whether you're a Christian that's still alive, you too will be changed. Something he repeats in verse 52. And then verses 52 and 53 gloriously give us some color commentary on this coming acorn, the oak tree, transformation. Let's look at verse 53. I'm sorry, verse 52. He says, in a moment, the Greek word is atomos, Adam, thought to be in that day a particle of matter or a, a, a particle of time so narrow, so skinny, you couldn't possibly cut it in two in a moment. Then he goes on to say, I don't know how fast this is, I just blinked, in the twinkling of an eye. Now, those two expressions in verse 52 tell us how fast this acorn to oak tree transformation is going to happen. It ain't going to be gradual. No, instantaneous. He's going to change us. And the next expression tells us when it's going to happen. At the last, what does he say? At the last trumpet. And that is a reference to the return of Christ. And he just now cuts loose with praise in the remaining verses in this section where he says, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable 
And some of, us, some of us will be changed how much? We will all be changed, whether you're dead or alive. You will be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. Now, listen, what he's saying here is when he raises us, it's, there's no more death, no more decaying, but not just that. Again, I keep on saying acorns to oak trees. We will be given bodies, the right bodies for the right environment, bodies suited to be with God forever and eternity. And just listen, just listen to me. Man, listen to what the Word of God has to say. When that day comes, when God says, get up, get your bodies, and come hang with me forever, then shall come to pass the, what's written, death is swallowed up in victory. And I think maybe the best, if that's the color commentary, I close this first point with the play-by-play. 1 Corinthians 5, or 4, verses 16 through 18, gives us the play-by-play, where he says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of command, and with the voice of the archangel, and the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we who are alive and remain behind shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. And then these words, Therefore, comfort one another. So I don't know what you're struggling with. I don't know what your setbacks are. I know I've got my own struggles. I've got my own setbacks. I've got my own heartbreaks. But I know a day of complete transformation is coming. How do I know that? Based on point number two. Based on a great victory in the past. He says in verse 54... If you can talk back, even though there's more people here today, okay? It's getting kind of quiet in here, please. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass. In other words, in that moment when this glorious event of our transformation from acorns to oak trees goes down, when, when it goes down and we go up, then shall come to pass this top play song in glory death is swallowed up in victory death is swallowed up in victory now there's three aspects or three installments or three tenses of the salvation this great victory in the past won and I want to walk these walk them with you okay a little, little theology but theology has great practice when it help when it there's shoe leather on it okay because when I became a Christian that, that, that last year in the Marine Corps, I started reading the Bible. Sometimes it says, says, I have been saved. And other times, I am being saved. And other times, I will be saved. And that was kind of confusing to me. Like, am I saved or not? Right? There's three tenses to salvation. Past tense. If you have trusted Christ, you have been saved once and for all from the penalty of sin. It's called Justification. What we deserve, you won't, read Christian verse, you won't read verses like this on coffee cups and calendars, but what we deserve is the judgment of God. Can we be real? And the Bible unflinchingly calls it the wrath of God. Now, not this red-faced, knee-jerk kind of you know, anger, but the wrath of God is his settled disposition against all that is evil and his commitment to deal with it. We want a universe in which that will ultimately prevail, Right? On the cross, Jesus absorbed the wrath you and I deserve. 
And it was the love of God that compelled Jesus to take our hidden in our place. For God, what, what does it say? Um, what's the verse? Oh, yeah, 1 John 4, 1-ish. Herein is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be, bam, the wrath-absorbing sacrifice for our sins. And guess what? When you turn to Christ, he takes away your penalty and he actually clothes you and credits you with the righteousness of Christ. He does. You know that dress I had to wear? I was clothed in that. I'm going to be clothed along with you in the righteousness of Christ forever. So when God looks at me, he doesn't look at me in my sin. He looks at me through the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Therefore, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you've come to Christ, you have been safe in the penalty of sin. Now the reason I'm quoting so many verses is because it doesn't matter what I think or what I feel. It's what God has said, right? Second present tense is right now, if I'm in Christ, I am being saved from the power of sin. Now let's be honest. That's a struggle sometimes, isn't it? It ebbs and it flows, right? We're bearing fruit. We're backsliding, right? There's rest and there's battle. Sometimes you just want to doggone quit, right? You ever been there? But a Christian at the end of the day is a person who can say, yeah, I ain't what I ought to be, or not what I'm going to be, but by the grace of God, I'm not what I used to be because I have met the risen Lord. Is that true for you? Can you, can you say that? Well, there's a third tense. Past tense, I have been saved from the penalty of sin, justification. I am being saved from the practice of sin, sanctification. And one day, praise God for this, I will be saved from the very possibility and presence of sin. When an acorn becomes an oak tree. I love what it says in 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we should become the children of God. Next verse, it doesn't yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he appears, his return, the last trumpet, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. It's talking about the utter transformation that's going to go down. And that's what this passage is highlighting, this coming transformation. Death swallowed up in victory. That's what this is putting on blast. Death is swallowed up in victory. When death is fully and finally annihilated, he's, listen, what, the Greek expression swallowed up, it's a kind of a crazy expression in the Greek, means this, drastic, decisive, total annihilation of death. In other words, death is not merely going to be ended. It's not simply going to be leveled. It's not only going to be destroyed. It is going to be annihilated. Death is done at transformation of his return. No one sings, we are the champions. Brian, spot on the worship team for that. No one sings that unless they are really believe down in the marrow of their soul that victory is without doubt happening and will happen. No one can say that unless they are completely sure of that victory, right? And Paul is convinced of that because of Jesus. In fact, in the next verse, I don't think he's doing trash talking, but I think Paul's doing a little truth talking. Maybe he sang this. Look at the next verses. Death is swallowed up in victory. Next verse. Oh, death, 
Hey, death, death, where you at? Where you at? Where's your victory? Oh, death, where you at? Where you at? Where's your sting? He's doing a little bit of truth talking. And he can do that because of the truth of verse 57. He has, sold, he, 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 has, he has believed and embraced that we have victory, verse 57, through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I've got to ask everyone here, where are you with Jesus? Have you trusted his victory on the cross to be your victory? Dying in your place and rising again. Look at verse 56 again. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Now he says, verse 56, the sting of death is sin. That's kind of an enigmatic expression, isn't it? Let me try and break it down. A devenomized cobra can bite you, and it will hurt, but it can't kill you. Why? Why? Because it's been devenomized. And the analogy I want to try and make is death, when it bites you, physical death, has no power over you if you're in Christ. But death does have quite a sting if you die with unforgiven sin. Does that make sense? In that case, when physical death bites you, and we all have an expiration date, death bats a thousand, last time I checked, that when death bites you, if you have unforgiven sin, that first death will lead you into a second death or eternal death, everlasting separation from God, where you will pay the penalty for your sin because God is a God of righteousness. In other words, unforgiven sin is death stinger. Does that make sense? He goes on to say the power of sin is the law. That's another kind of difficult enigmatic phrase. What are you saying there is, in other words, the law shows us the reality of that thing that, thing that brings death, sin. And the thing that we so need to be forgiven of and why Christ came in the first place. That's really important because most people think, yeah, I'm pretty cool. I, I never killed anybody for crying out loud, right? Religion teaches us to play the comparison game. Well, you know, I don't do this, but I don't do that. And man, people think they're really cool until, as the scripture calls itself, they look in the mirror of God's word. And you look in the mirror of God's word, and you're like, whew, I got more than egg on my face. And I got more than stank in my heart, right? You go to the first commandment, which says, you should have no other gods before you. It doesn't matter if you say the right thing. Your God is where you run. It's where you run for identity. It's where you run for relief. It's where you run for rescue and purpose and all that. What are some of the places that we run to, family? What are some of the places we run to? Huh? You, you can speak out. Where do we, where do we run? Jobs, promotion, relationships, substances, all of that, right? And what we're really doing, Netflix, <laughs> just don't say Bally Sports Detroit, okay? That's a little too personal. Um, 
John Calvin said our hearts are idol factories. Though we're actually making non-gods into gods, that's called idolatry. And we all do it. We've all done it. The second commandment says we're not to make a graven image. Like, you know, make, make a god and then bow down and worship it. And I'm sure nobody here would say, oh, man, you really called me out. I got a, a wood little god in my back room at home. But, man, we can break the second commandment not just by making a god with our hands, but most than that, more than that, making a god with our head. When we define God on our own terms, people say all the time, my God would never do this, my God would never do that. And it's like well, a preacher said to a lady, that's true, but your God doesn't exist. <laughs> we take God as he has revealed himself. Those who are fools say, no, no, I'll define you the way I want to. Those who fear the Lord say, okay, I want to know you. The third commandment says, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. That one really got me, by the way. You know, GD. But not just that, it's just taking the Lord's name, not, not really even meaning to talk to God. You guys know my story. I won't even, for time's sake, I won't tell you the story, but, but somebody called me out on that, and, and that was a harpoon to my heart. It wasn't honoring God. Fourth commandment is remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. Now, we worship on Sunday because that's the day Jesus rose from the dead, and we, we're not Sabbatarians. We don't believe that this is like the Sabbath, but there is a worship principle and priority, isn't there? Do you prioritize worshiping the Lord, or do you run after your real gods? The fifth commandment says, honor your mother and father. That's not just doing when they say to do it. That's doing what they say when they say to do it with a right heart attitude. All of us, right? The sixth commandment says, you shall not kill. And Jesus kind of raised the stakes, and he said, if you look upon someone with hate, You've already committed murder because what murder did it begin with? Somebody hating somebody else or a fit of anger, right? The seventh commandment says, you shall not commit adultery. And sometimes guys will say, well, there's no harm in looking, or a gal can say there's no harm in looking. According to Jesus, when you look upon a, a person to lust after them, woman, man, whoever, you've committed adultery in your heart. The eighth commandment says, you shall not steal. It don't matter whether it was a stick of chewing gum or a stock portfolio. Stealing, stealing. And the ninth commandment says this. You ought not to lie. And listen, God doesn't have this nice little category. We have a white lie, an innocent lie. No, a lie is a lie, and it's an affront to the God of truth. And then the tenth commandment comes all the way back to the first commandment. Thou shalt not covet. I wish I had his. I wish I had her. I wish I had... Whatever, 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 whatever. Again, that's just looking for love in all the wrong places. That's idolatry again. Now, this mirror lays us all open, doesn't it? So I want to remind you all. Listen, if you don't feel the sting, feel the, the, the sting of sin right now, I, I, I got to tell you, you will feel the sting of sin in eternity. I would not be a good friend I would not be a faithful pastor if, if I didn't say that. They would say, you know, Easter, just talk about bunny rabbits and, and warm colors, you know. And it is a day of great joy. But, but I just want to repeat something that I said last week because I fumbled through it like I fumbled through a lot of stuff. <laughs> You're so patient. But because I think it's so important. I said, or I tried to say, that if you die once, no, see, I already messed it up. Okay, all right, here we go, here we go, here we go. 
All right, I got this. I got this. I got this. Here it is. And it's, it's a big truth. If you're only born once, you will die twice. But if you're born twice, you will only die once. Now, let me try to fill that out briefly. If you're only born physically, you're alive, you snore at night, all the rest. But you are never born again, what Jesus called being born again, a spiritual new birth as you trust in him. Then when you physically die, when the cobra bites you, you will experience a second death when your soul is separated from God in a place called hell. And when Christ returns, because that's what this passage is talking about, your body will be raised from the dust, reunited with your soul, and you will stand before Jesus at what's called the great white throne judgment. The book of Revelation talks about this. And you will receive the fairest trial ever given. There'll be no need for debating what the evidence is. The books, are, the books will be open, it says. The fairest trial. And since you said, no, I can get to heaven on my own, God says, well, you've got to be perfect, and that's why I sent my son. But you rejected that. Boom. You're an idolater. And you'll be cast into what Jesus calls Gehenna, a lake of fire, which the Bible calls the second death. Born once, die twice. Now, that should be sobering to us, right? But the flip side is this. If you're born twice, that is, you're born physically, obviously, but then you have uh, an encounter with Jesus Christ. You put your faith in him. You experience a new birth. Then when you physically die, that's the only thing that's going to die. Your soul goes immediately in the presence of the Lord. Because it says in 2 Corinthians 5, 8, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And then at that great getting up day, at the sound of the last trumpet, with the great cry of command, the voice of the archangel, when God says, come get your bodies, in that day, your body and soul will be reunited, a glorified body, fit for the new heavens and earth. And oh, by the way, it'll be kicked off with the party of the ages, the wedding supper of the Lamb in the new Jerusalem. Now, have you trusted in Jesus, the great victor, to be your Savior? There is a great transformation in the future because of a great victory in the past. And I'll do this real quick because we have our own party coming up. A great response. Paul in verses 57 through 58 just lets loose with a flood of affection. Two sides of the same coin. One side is celebration and the other side is commitment. That's the kind of response that should flow out of receiving Christ, right? Look at verse 57. But thanks be to God who gives us what? Say it like you mean it. The victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, because of the victory we have in Christ, all of our gratitude, all of our praise, all of our joy, all of our celebration should make the celebration, which was quite energetic, that happened that Friday night back in 2017 up in Genesee County, seem like yawning in comparison because of the victory we have. We're about to sing an awesome song. Hallelujah! What's the next line? Music team? You have won the victory. Hallelujah, you did it all for your glory. Death could not 
You are the risen king. What's after that? Seated in majesty, reign over everything. Boom. Second tryout for the worship team. We're, gonna, we're all going to sing for that in just a second. We're going to celebrate. And listen. Yes, 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 yes. I, I ain't being Pollyannish, not trying to be, you know, seeing things through rose-colored lens. Life is really hard sometimes, isn't it? There's setbacks. There's heartbreaks. There's failed expectations. There's some, there's some things that will never heal this side of eternity in their fullness. There's scars. But because we know the, the final score up on the scoreboard when the horn goes off, even then, there can be celebration. There's celebration and there's commitment, the other side of the coin. Therefore, verse 58, my beloved brothers, that's Paul's heart for that church. They were pretty jacked up, but he loved them. Therefore, my beloved brothers, in light of what I just told you about this great transformation and the great victory, therefore, because of that, it follows, we ought to be, what? Steadfast. That word means firmly seated. And then there's the word immovable. That means unshakable. Paul is saying, we need to hold fast to the truth and live by it. There were many pressures in the surrounding culture of Corinth that were causing them to vacillate and to compromise. And no doubt even just the pressures of struggles and setbacks and heartbreaks, the same kinds of things that we experience to this day, was causing them to, to, to compromise, to vacillate in, in what they believed about God and how they lived for God. And Paul is saying, don't move. Be steadfast. Be immovable. And then he says, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Keep serving God as first place in your life. Don't be lackadaisical. Don't be lukewarm. As my dad used to say when he's coaching our teams, don't lollygag. Old word, right? Don't compromise. And maybe, maybe this is the time when you need to recommit your life to the Lord to really follow him, not just in paper, but in practice. And then he says this, knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Even when it looks like you're way down, you ain't. So let's live like we know the final outcome because we do. We win because Jesus won. Catherine Booth was known as the mother of the Salvation Army. Salvation Army was started by her husband, William Booth. She was dying a very painful death in 1890 of cancer. They didn't have the kind of medical treatment that they do today, obviously. It was really brutal, really painful, really gory as you read about it. She's nearing the end of her life, and she says these words, The water is rising, but I'm not going under. I'm going over. Now, that's the testimony of a woman who believes that because Jesus wins, she wins will win. And that impacts not just how a person will die, but how they will live. We win because Jesus won. A great transformation coming in the future based on a great victory in the past demands a great response right now. So speaking of response, how ought you to respond to the word of God this morning? Let's pray.
Father, thank you so much for this, this truth. I pray, Father, that we would um, we'd really wrestle with how we ought to respond. Um, that, Lord, you would just put, you would delete anything I said that was not according to your word and put the pedal to the metal by your spirit on everything that was. I pray, Father, for your spirit to work in hearts right now. As a matter of fact, while your, he- while your heads are still down, can I ask you a question? If you are somebody who says, you know what? I want, I, I want to know that my sins are forgiven. I want to know that I've experienced the second birth, so all I have ahead of me is one death, not two deaths. All I have ahead of me is eternal life. If you're someone, you, don't, you, don't, you may not know much, but you're like, yeah, I know that I have, I've done wrong. I know I've sinned, but I really believe Jesus died for my sin because he loves me and rose again to forgive me. If you're somebody like that, would you, would you just slip your hand up in the air? Let us know. Anybody here like that? All right. Anybody else? Anybody else? Well, fortunately, the Holy Spirit is like the Energizer Bunny. It keeps ticking long when we're done here. And a little bit later on, you're like, I need, I need this forgiveness. Call upon the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible says that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus Christ, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. I do want to ask one other question. Anybody here who would say, man, I've I've been kind of drifting in my walk with the Lord. I've been kind of been lackadaisical, lethargic. I I have not taken it seriously. In fact, I've been running to other places. And even right now, I'm struggling, even struggling to believe, but but this is the posture of my heart. I want to recommit my life to him. I want to recommit to following him. If there's anybody here like that, would you raise your hand? Like that at all? Anybody at all? Because I have a hard time believing everybody in this room is following the Lord like they really want to follow him. And raise your hand doesn't mean a stinking thing, but surrendering your heart does, right? It does. Anybody, anybody else? Say, yeah. I'm just... I'm not where I want to be with the Lord. And maybe this is a good time to plant a, plant a flag in the ground. Anybody here like that? They want, they want to get after him in a fresh way. All right, let's pray. And we are going to, uh, I'm going to finish this prayer, and then we're going to sing. We're going to stand, and we're going to sing that song uh, that we just heard the lyrics from. There'll be a team of people in back. There's Pastor Charles back there. Um, if you need prayer about surrendering your life to Christ or recommitting your life to Christ, Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that it, they said this about Jesus, this man receives sinners, because that's who we are. Thank you that you are a God who is so gracious and so merciful. Lord, I know you resist the proud, but give grace to the humble. So anybody here, Lord, who, who's resisting uh, the work of the Holy Spirit, God, I pray that you would, yeah, Lord, you would just crush their heart, not to leave them in condemnation, but to lead them out of it into fellowship with you. Thank you that we know the final score. And thank you that we can sing in victory. We win because Jesus won. And we praise you in his name. Amen.